0: Hello, I'm Scott Beardsley, here today with Dominic Barton, global managing partner of consulting powerhouse McKinsey & Company. Dominic leads the firm's focus on the future of capitalism and the role of business leadership creating social and economic value. He's a prolific author and expert on business in many regions of the world, particularly in Asia. I also had the privilege of being his colleague at McKinsey for 26 years. Dom, welcome to Darden. Dom, at a global consulting firm like McKinsey, you get incredible insight into the trends happening around the world. You know, what do you see are the trends that clients are focusing on the most? I think there's a there's a lot of them going on right now. I mean, because of all the big
1: underlying shifts that are happening in the world, you know, the the re rise of Asia, Africa, technology shifts, aging and all of that. I'd say that the biggest trend I see is business model redesign. So companies really rethinking how they add value and at, at a more fundamental level. So business model redesign, organization change, you know, how, how de flattening um, the uh, introduction of advanced analytics and digital um, into uh, organizations, uh, building resilience. So j- is it, there's a range. Those are probably the four things that I see the most.
0: Yeah, and when you, when you look around the world, we see an incredible amount of unrest, geopolitical uncertainty. How are clients starting to think about that, and how does McKinsey work with them to manage economic and social uncertainty? What are some of the things that are done?
1: Yeah, it's a good, it's a, that's an, it's a new area, right? I mean, I don't know when you were in the firm if that, because we weren't taught to deal with that. You sort of assumed geopolitics was like you work within a box, but that box is shifting. Um, And and, and by the way, this all reflects for us too, right? We have a significant Russian practice, a Chinese practice, you know, so these changes affect us as as we go through it. I think there's two ways that we try and do it. One is that um, I think it's very important to have a, a scenario of what you think it might be, and you can't pick one place, so you yeah. need to have, this is where I said resilience matters. If something goes pear-shaped in one area, you've got to be able to have a supply chain, for example, that will work somewhere else. We'll give you an example. Ford has, you know, did an excellent job in South Korea. If something ever happened with North Korea, they could very quickly you know, re- you know reshift their supply chain. That's, it's, it's absolutely critical to do that. So that's one dimension, is being prepared on the scenario side for where it is. I think the other is that, um, you know, you, you have to be more local than we ever have been. So while you're yeah. global, you've got to be local. Yeah. Uh, you, you, d- you have to be an insider in that particular economy. Uh, one is a per- Ian Bremmer, who, who does a lot with the Eurasia Group, because yeah. also McKinsey doesn't do geopolitical strategy, but we need to mm-hmm. understand it. You know, and what he's always told me is, remember, this is a game of relative competition, too. You, you, you don't need to outrun the bear. You, you need to do better yeah. than your competition in this. And so that's just a, but it is now a factor in strategy. You, you, you have to take this into
0: account what you're doing. Do you see people worried about things like trade wars or, you yeah. know, democracy or just underlying models of society that are changing? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, you know, geopolitical risk has now become a top
1: risk issue five years ago it wasn't on the table right and uh, mm-hmm. it, so it's uh, for CEOs around the world um but as you said it's societal issues too I think the Brexit vote was yeah. a, a pivot point it just it shocked people because no one thought it would happen and it's a, su- it's a it's a societal shift is what you said and that's happening in lots of places and the question is
0: what can you do about
1: it yes
0: um, so turning to leadership in that context, you know, I know both McKinsey and Darden place tremendous emphasis on developing leaders. You know, what do you view are the key traits that we can help to develop in our employees, our students or our clients to become great leaders? What what is needed today?
1: Well, I, I think there's a couple of dimensions, and we, we, you and I have talked about this before. I, I think one is actually this global mindset. I mean, we're in a global world. Even if there's localization occurring, you, you just have to understand what's happening in different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's that. You, you need to understand, have that view. I, I think the the other part is, you know, is around character. It's around who you are. Like, are you? You need to be resilient. You need to have purpose. You need to be able to compartmentalize issues. You have to be short-term and long-term at the same time. These are kind of like yeah. n- different types of leadership muscles than we've we've talked about because there's volatility. And I think that's, that's quite different than what we've experienced in the last 20 years, the level of volatility. Um, I, I think the other part is you've got to learn how to learn. I mean, this is something you've been on For a long time, and when when you were in McKinsey too, of just pushing, you know, it's it's lifelong learning because the world's changing so quickly. You know, the amount, the half life of a skill set is just shrinking, and that's hard when you're working hard. How do you keep learning? That that's a, I find that a personal challenge.
0: Do you see a world where? Students will come back repeatedly to places like the University of Virginia, or absolutely. You know, is there going to be a shift in education I, model? I really do. I think there has to be because again, the half life of skills is
1: shrinking. There's just there's no question about it. Parts of the CEO job can be automated. You know, this is so. We've got all these changes. I I and I really do. I would be very surprised if, you know. Especially a, s- a student now wasn 't going to be at university six or seven times in their next thirty to forty years yes. uh, and i don 't think you have to go for a year. I think they can be bite sized yes. I personally i think it 's for renewal it 's for understanding the world, so it, how do you make them bite sized but I think having a relationship with the university
0: is a is going to be really important yes turning turning to cultural change at McKinsey. You've really made a lot of changes on how uh, both the way the partners work with clients, but the way McKinsey works with clients too. W- why did McKinsey need to even change? It was so well, successful before. W- why? Well, I think
1: we have to take our own medicine, right? With all, because I truly believe those forces, and I think our partners see that too, which is that with that amount of disruption, you know, the ha- the, the sort of lifetime of a company shrinking. Um, the amount of change. There's no way we can kind of say, well, that doesn't affect us. That's all you guys. And so to be successful long-term means you have to challenge your orthodoxies. And, um, you, again, you and I have talked about this. We've got a lot of orthodoxies, and some of them are very good, like our values. We, you know, we don't want to change those. But you know, how we serve a client, why does every problem or opportunity take a engagement manager plus two people. That just drove me crazy. We don't, you know. W- sometimes people want software. Sometimes people want capability building. Uh, sometimes people want full-time people to help do it. So we, we have to change. And right today, as you said, we're, we're, I think we're changing a lot. I, it's a hard thing to know whether we're changing fast enough. I mean, I, that's a like a speedometer I, I want to I look at a lot. Mm-hmm. Right today, about 40% of what we do didn't exist three years ago. I think that's a good speed, it's b- but I, I actually think we have to keep going because you also know how conservative we are, Yes. right? You, you know, and we. So part of this, I think, is just getting an innovation mindset too. That you know what, w- right now, what we're doing, which we think is new, will be an orthodoxy in five years from now. We better challenge it. So I, that's yeah. what that's the cultural change.
0: I'm, I'm hoping that we'll we'll achieve. So both you and I have to manage in a shared governance context you know at McKinsey it's a partnership with uh, owners that are that are you have to try and lead at Darden or at any university it's the faculty that have tenure and have come up through a process uh, similar to being elected to a partner in many ways yeah how do you view leadership in a shared governance type of context What what's different well, I, th- I think it's one of the most powerful leadership
1: models that are out there. I, I actually think corporations are going to have to start looking at it, but I think it's also one of the most difficult. I actually mm-hmm. don't envy you. I, I think the <laughs> faculty, are, you know, they're independent-minded, and that's what you like. To, to tough mo- and no one, it's a bit like also a McKinsey partner. If you tell someone in McKinsey what to do, you will get a chainsaw in your head so <laughs> fast it's not <laughs> funny. So It's true. But that <laughs> said, you need to... So I think leadership, you do it through influence if you it's not power, I don't think. It's more influence themes that you, you put across. I think making and I think, you know, lots of discussion. You you know, and and also recognizing that it's not about consensus either. It's trust. But you so so I think there's these elements are influence, conversation, discussion, but also having a view about about where you want to go and, and the and the debate. I think what's really important, though, in a, and I don't, you know more. and I'd love to compare notes because is the selflessness. I think if you the servant leadership, I think is really important. I think I don't think at least in McKinsey, if it's about you, you will be thrown out of here so fast. It's not funny. People can smell it. You, you can you, you can fake that you're, but people know. And I would imagine I don't in faculty if it's all about you know Scott wants to do this. You, right. you all want to do. People are going to start to say what the hell. No, that's, this, that's right? very similar. It? Yeah, it's so, the same challenge. If I yeah.
0: lecture people what to do, it's it doesn't go down very well. It's all about how to how do I help everybody achieve their aspiration? Yeah. how to and, be a servant leader? I, exactly. I th- so I think servant leadership is is
1: absolutely is critical. But it also means you you it doesn't mean you don't lead. I think there's a need for ambition and themes and conversations, but it it takes longer. I think. But I think it's more sustainable.
0: Do you think that will bleed over into corporate America, that type of, basically what we're talking about is how do you lead stakeholders? I do. I I think I'm, you know, it's interesting for me anyhow. Marvin
1: Bauer, the last book he wanted to write, Marvin Bauer was really a core founder of McKinsey when he was 98 years old. The last book he was writing was uh, basically partnership for corporates. Hmm. And his view was that, There are elements of partnership that are vital for organizations because, as what you said, one leader cannot possibly bear the brunt or understand or deal with all the issues. So in a partnership, you have have more leaders, so you can handle more issues. You have more agility. You also can attract more leaders because it's not one person becoming the boss. Everyone can be a leader. You know McKinsey, we have 1,600 partners. I would say those 1,600 people, each of them feel like a CEO. Yeah. Again, if I tried to tell them, you know, you do go this way, that's game over. And I, and I, so I think if you take someone like in a retail chain, yes. I think that there are elements of the partnership model that would work really well. Yes. You know, you, you, because one, you have a mindset of I'm an owner. I'm not. I'm. I own the broader institution, not just marketing. Yes. Uh, but I have a specialization in in what I actually do. Uh, I have accountability like it 's dispersed leadership i don 't have to do everything. I may be focused more on yes. people. you may be f- more focused on our reputation so it it 's shift and share is a is, yes. an, is an element of it and I think by definition in a partnership, you actually spend more time on people you know because yeah, you because you, you want people to be to develop and there 's more spots yes. so i I do think that 's shifting and your point about stakeholders i I also agree i mean I think you 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 have to spend time making sure that the co- there's a collective sense of purpose and view, yeah. and um, if you don't spend the time doing that, you may find you you don't you're not
0: attached yes. to what the organization's doing. So, so you you run a company that is extremely global, operating all over the world, 110 offices, 56 countries, something like that. At Darden, we're trying to make student leaders that are global. Yeah. So if you're, a, for a student, that's aspiring to be the global leader, what advice would you have for them? What does it mean to be global? Right. One thing,
1: too, I'd say is I don't want to make it sound too like, just back to your point on the let I run the organization because people will go crazy. crazy. But, but in that spirit of leading, trying to lead in a global organization, I, you know, I think there's a couple of elements of it. One is just the mindset. We've talked about this before. I mean, you yes. worked all over the world. And I think you, are com- you were comfortable being in Saudi Arabia, Korea, Belgium. It didn't, it, it didn't matter because you, you understood different cultures and that people mm-hmm. acted and operated in different ways. It was like you could swim in different waters. So I think you, you have to be comfortable in different cultures of how people make decisions and how they, they think about things. Um, I think the second is you actually have to, Know some people in those places who mm-hmm. can help you. So building relationships. You know, who do you know in China? It doesn't mean they represent, China, but right. they can help you. You have a connection. You know what's going on. It's a network. I think it's very important to have a global network, and that you don't have to visit them all the time. Or yes. sit, you, you're on the phone. You do things with them. I think that's a um, you know an important part of it. And, and I think, by the way, it's also you can be global locally. I think you know you. Who do you hang around within the local place that you are? There's a lot of global. There's a lot of people. I've I seen it in the flags here. It, there's a lot of global people here. So in the student population, yes. do you know the person from? I get to know the person from Nigeria or the person yes. who's from China, and if and not just obviously. Be, and at McKinsey, what I we always say our training programs were fundamental in that when you do the. EM College, the, the sort of training program for project managers in Cambridge, frankly, the, I always felt the biggest part of that was you're going to meet people from all over the world. They're different in a w- than you. Different than you. You get a week with them. And I, I think people remember that even more than the good content that you were developing yes. for that program.
0: <laughs> I agree fully the, the mixing with people yeah. that you would otherwise not meet. Last question. As you think about the world and business, what makes you the most optimistic and what worries you about the business world today? Overall, I'm optimistic uh, um,
1: even though there's a lot of volatility. What makes me optimistic is I actually think technology is going to be able to unleash even more creativity in humans. I mean, some, some people have called it the indigo economy, right? This is the notion of the it's humans with technology, and you, mm-hmm. you think about in Indonesia if we can educate another thirty million people i 'm sure there's seven Einsteins that are in that population but so the the ability to to, to allow more people to participate in the global economy mm-hmm. through digitization um, you 'll get financial inclusion education I think the the human we're we're going to basically i think triple our human Computing power, uh, which gets mm. me excited, i just can 't even imagine what it is, but I feel good about it, and I think yes. it'll also will be hopefully be more informed you know about what works and doesn 't work, and we can 't be fooled by people who are telling us b s and so because we have that inf- so that 's the part that makes me excited and there 's a huge demographic boom co- from in these markets like Africa and Indonesia and India and so forth so i 'm excited yes. by that what i 'm worried about is our from, from a business point of view is our institutions globally are not fit for purpose, right? We, it was designed, you know, in the, right after World War II, the world changed fundamentally. And so I I worry about, you know, how, with this huge amount of opportunity, how that's shared prosperity.
0: Which institutions it, do you worry about? Like, are they governments? Uh, I, or I, I worry
1: about, I'm going to say all of them, including education. That's why I loved your notion of the this lifelong learning and tr- using technology and what, you know, that we, we do it. But if I think about K to 12, I, I just, why do we put a, it was Shimon Perez that says, why do we put 14-year-old boys and girls behind a desk for eight hours a day? It just makes no sense in this, you know, what are we learning? What are we teaching them? I, I worry about our, um, you know, our how democracy works. Are, are we able to pick leaders who can, lead? Are they going to be short-term? It's very difficult being a politician. I mean, you, it's Indeed. hard to be long-term. You need to get booted out. So it takes really brave leaders to be able to do something. And we don't have a lot of those. So I worry about that. You know, I think the World Bank and the UN, they're all trying to do uh, things, but the governance structure is munged up. You know, these guys, they can't drive something because, because the governance structure is buggered up. You've got really good people in yes. there. but So how do you change that? Well, it's difficult. So I I um, I think the institutional governance change, we've got to move. And the problem is the world's speeding. It's happening faster than our cycle of doing it. And what I hope we don't have is have to have a big crisis to get a change. Can we make a change yes. without getting a crisis? That's what I worry about. Are we going to need a resetting of the boxes? Yes. Um, and we've not got a very good record as humans. That, that's the dark side, if I look at it. But
0: I'm Can the institutions change fast enough to keep up with all the other changes that are going on? That's
1: the part. And it's a, I think we're in a really, that's the delicate part of this 20-year time frame. But I'm, I'm overall, I'm optimistic. I think we're creative. As I said, even with that, you look at the International Space Station in a bizarre way inspires me because even with conflict, people, our scientists can actually work together to do something for the future. That, I find that, that makes me happy. And I, why can't we do more of that? And,
0: yes. and I think we can. Great. Thank you very much, Dominic. Thanks, Scott.